Good morning. Uh, th uh, my name is Doris Meissner, and I'm a senior fellow here at the Migration Policy Institute. I'd like to um, welcome everyone to this web to this uh, MPI Zolberg webinar called Migration and Coronavirus: A Complicated Nexus Between Migration Management and Public Health. We have a very large audience this morning, and so I'd like to tell you that we really appreciate your interest and thank you so much for joining during this unprecedented in our lifetimes uh, difficult time. First, I'd like to make a housekeeping note, give you some instructions on how to be sure that you're connected here. If you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org or call 202 266-1929. We will have a Q&A at the end of the call. There will not be a voice Q&A, so please type in any questions to the Q&A chat box, which is on the right side of your screen, and send it to the host or, to e or email your questions to events at migrationpolicy.org. You can also tweet your questions to at Migration Policy or hashtag MPI Discuss. Our panelists this morning are all in different places, and so we're doing this uh, uh, by, uh, by, by, by telemethods. First is Natalia Bonalescu Bogdan, who is the Associate Director of our International Program at MPI. Our second panelist is Alex Elenikoff, University Professor and Director of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School and former Deputy UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Our third speaker is Alan Kraut, Distinguished Professor of History at American University and a non-resident fellow uh, at MPI. You can also, in addition to this webinar, be checking out a related commentary that we published last week. Coronavirus is spreading across the borders, but it is not a migration problem, which is co-authored by Natalia and two other MPI uh, staff, M Megan Benton and Susan Fratsky. It's available on MPI's website. We will also be releasing some COVID-19 related materials and hosting a related webinar on COVID-19 and migration in the Americas. So let me begin the actual discussion here by saying that as governments confront and work to combat COVID-19, we're seeing what nearly always characterizes responses to major disasters and crises, and that is an inherent tension between the need to mobilize all of society's resources to fight the threat and upholding core principles of liberal democracies, such as civil and human rights, the right to privacy, freedom of movement, and international protection obligations. As we see migration management measures being invoked to contain and stop the spread, how this tension is playing out is the backdrop for our discussion. Now this pandemic began abroad and so we too are going to begin abroad with our presentations this morning and turn to Natalia to take us through a global perspective. Natalia, please go ahead. Thank you so much, Doris, and good morning, everybody. So the conversation has shifted rapidly from limiting travel from outbreak areas when there was still a hope to contain the virus to now restricting mobility of all kinds in really unprecedented ways to mitigate the spread of what is now a global pandemic. The arc from containment to mitigation has been a short one. Within just the past two weeks, we've watched an extraordinary acceleration in the deployment of migration management tools to halt the virus. By early March, only a handful of countries had issued travel bans, mostly for China and Iran, and begun to conduct heightened screening of travelers at the visa stage, at airports, and upon arrival. And already, these were the most sweeping interventions we had seen to restrict travel. 
But as of yesterday, IOM estimates that 174 countries have implemented COVID-19-related restrictions on mobility, including closing borders and imposing total bans on passengers. So the question of the hour is, do these measures work to halt the spread of disease? Yes and no. There's no question that travel restrictions need to be in place right now as a key part of reducing movements of all kinds and limiting the human interaction that the virus needs to survive. But the disproportionate focus on the border created the impression that we could kind of wall ourselves off from this disease, and we can't. What travel restrictions can do, however, is give you a head start. They can delay the threat and buy valuable breathing space. But this is only useful if you actually use this time, which countries bought at enormous social and economic costs, to act aggressively to track and trace outbreaks in all parts of society. So basically, the threat does not begin and end at the border. What we know now is that by the time borders started closing en masse in mid-March, hundreds of thousands of people had already been circulating from outbreak zones, and community transmission had already begun in Western countries. Yet the continued focus on migration tools was not matched by aggressive efforts to track internal movements as the virus was spreading within communities. So as we reflect back on what we could have done differently, I want to briefly point out three blind spots in using migration management tools to fight a public health threat. So the first blind spot is treating travel restrictions as the solution rather than as only one part of the puzzle. We all know that it's impossible to hermetically seal borders, and closing legal routes in a world of porous borders does not mean you are stopping entry. Motivated travelers will be willing to take large risks to circumvent these barriers, including masking their symptoms at ports of entry or engaging in more circuitous travel to get around visa restrictions, all of which also have adverse effects on public health goals. But perhaps most importantly, the restrictions being implemented were riddled with exceptions and loopholes that undercut their effectiveness. Almost all early travel restrictions had exceptions for certain groups, and many still do, like returning citizens and their families, diplomats, and Air and Sea crew members. Yet much of the community transmission of coronavirus has been linked to returning nationals, and these groups have received extremely haphazard screening. So this was one of the loopholes exploited by a virus that does not care what passport you hold. Also, the implementation of these restrictions in many cases flouted basic public health principles. We saw severe chaos and overcrowding in airports with long screening queues and forced quarantines, which undermines the first line of protection in a public health emergency, which is physical distance from others. The second blind spot was using nationality and migration status as a proxy for public health threats. Predictably, many populist and far-right politicians were quick to make the link between foreigners and disease, and restrictions on migrants and asylum seekers were among the first moves out of the gate, made by governments wanting to project a sense of control to their publics. As countries like Hungary and Greece banned asylum seekers for one month, there was a sense that the crisis provided a fig leaf for draconian immigration restrictions that politicians could not achieve by other means. But these knee-jerk bans based on nationality, in some cases, ensnared people who had not actually been near outbreak areas. For instance, Iranian asylum seekers who had been displaced and closed camps in Turkey for years, and it missed other people who had with travelers from the United Kingdom and Ireland exempted from President Trump's March 11th announcement to ban travel from Europe, which initially only applied to Schengen countries. So the result is that the kind of mobility being curtailed was not necessarily the kind associated with the greatest threat in spreading disease. Finally, the third blind spot is that this language of invasion created false expectations among the public that the threat was only outside. We've had to ask some very hard things of our publics in recent days that would have been unthinkable even two weeks ago. And there's a possibility that without the distraction of linking foreigners and disease, we might have acted sooner to limit the spread within our own countries. In the two weeks since the WHO declared a global pandemic, the focus has shifted to slowing the spread and curtailing all forms of movement. So shutting down all forms of travel is a, is a logical part of this package. However, for this to work, we have to remember two lessons. 
So the first is that the border is just one part of the puzzle. We need to think about how travel restrictions work in concert with other interventions. It doesn't make sense to make such strenuous efforts to keep disease from crossing your borders, but then do nothing to track the smaller flow of people who are still entering, especially as people may develop symptoms long after you've seen them in an airport. So we need vigilant screening, testing, and contact tracing beyond borders, and every part of government has to be working toward the same social distancing goal. And the second lesson is that once community transmission has already started, we need to pay more attention to other forms of vulnerability within our own countries. One of the most important assets we have in a public health crisis is people's willingness to openly disclose symptoms, which they will not do if they fear legal or financial or other repercussions. So we need to figure out how to reach the vast communities of vulnerable people who have weak trust in public authorities, limited access to healthcare, including the unauthorized in the United States or Roma encampments in Europe, migrant workers on precarious contracts and populations in detention or camps. And if we don't do these things, we're still, we're missing a huge health threat right under our noses. So as we move into the mitigation phase, we're gonna find that our weaknesses in stopping the spread of the virus will map onto the existing fissures and weaknesses of our immigration systems. These are not easy things to solve. Basically, there are no good options anymore, just a series of imperfect trade-offs. But I think if we've learned anything, it's that the solution to this crisis cannot be piecemeal. It's about societies working in unison toward a common goal. Thanks. Thank you, Natalia. Thank you very much. Well, okay, let's take that and turn the spotlight onto the United States, what's happening here, uh, as well as some of the broader issues that it raises for the assumptions under which the world has been functioning and certainly the United States has been where immigration is concerned. Uh, for that, we're turning to Alex. Alex, welcome. Please go ahead. Thanks, Doris. And uh, the Zolberg Institute of the New School is delighted to be partnering with MPI on, uh, on this webinar. Um, I do want to focus in on the, uh, the U.S. policies here at the border primarily, and, and a lot of it are, are specific applications of what Natalia has just talked about. So let me, let me run through them, and I'll, I want to describe them in a little bit of detail because they're, they're quite interesting and, and, and different between, among themselves and worth looking at that way. So the first order was on January 31st, the so-called China order. Uh, and it banned all uh, people who had been in China within the past 14 days uh, from entering the United States. And as Natalia mentioned, similar to other orders around the world, there were big exceptions for U.S. citizens and their spouses, for green card holders and their spouses, for parents and siblings of uh, U.S. citizens and LPRs if, they're, if the kids are less than 21, and for foreign diplomats and others. So. Um, there, there were there were large uh, large holes. This order came just after the first case of community spread was identified in Seattle, and it goes to Natalia's point that uh, the virus is already in the U.S. So exactly what this contributed to preventing additional spread um, is not entirely clear. Um, there had um, so it, th that order was followed then on March 11th for Europe. It was actually for the 26 countries of the Schengen zone. It's not the EU because Norway and Switzerland are in the Schengen zone, but not the EU. And it didn't include the UK and Ireland originally, although they were added a few days later after numbers in those countries went up as well. And these had similar exceptions to the Chinese rule, uh, the Chinese ban um, of the US citizens, LPR spouses and the like. I wanna make three points about these sets of bans. So the initial reaction of some people was that this was typical Trump xenophobia, it was racist because it applied to China, it was immigrant blaming uh, and the like, although I would point out here that the bans did not apply on based on nationality, but rather having been present in these countries in a 14-day uh, period. They were not nationality-based, uh, nationality of the person. Um, I, I, I think this characterization, there's something to it, but there's also not something to it. Um, there's a clear public health justification for trying to slow the spread by keeping people out who might be carrying uh, the virus, as uh, the famous Dr. Fauci uh, has made uh, clear in, in a number of statements. You want to prevent the new arrivals uh, of the virus as much as you can. And also, when Europe was added, it's very hard to make a claim of racism in the, in the Trump uh, policy. 
but at a deeper level, it certainly does show the America first mindset of the administration that you can build a wall to keep people out and you can keep germs out this way as well. This was in Trump's statement about not letting the cruise ship in because his numbers uh, would go up. The, the U.S. can go it alone. We can use the word here, immunize ourselves from the world, you know, rather than cooperating with the world. Um, and it certainly had these elements that we could actually stop this from coming in by building this uh, a kind of wall. It hasn't worked, as Natalia pointed out. The second point is the, the, the odd way, the way these bans mirror the Muslim ban, um, is that certain countries or areas were deemed as dangerous. And then exceptions were built in for U.S. Uh, citizens and for LPRs, as, as happened with, uh, with the Muslim ban. And there was also the similar picture of this total chaos at the airports after the European ban as Americans and LPRs scrambled um, to, get, uh, to get home. And then thirdly is the point that uh, the Trump claim that this early ban of the, the China ban saved tens of thousands of lives. I, I'm very skeptical of that claim. We'll need to know, you know that, that for, to further evidence about this. But we already know that there was community spread before that happened. But more importantly, as, and as Natalia also pointed out, in a lot of these rules, there, these, there were these tremendous exceptions. So that by the end of February, the CDC had reported that 46,000 people had come to the United States from China. And um, although um, they, the government said there was screening, uh, they were simply looking for existing simple, uh, symptoms of temporary, I'm sorry, temperature uh, of a cough or of shortness uh, of breath. And we know now that many people can be asymptomatic. And these people were then released and told to self-quarantine, but we have no way of knowing whether they did. There was no monitoring of that or the like. Similar numbers from Europe. 40,000 people came the first weekend um, of the ban, and we saw the pictures of the crowds at the airports, long lines of people jammed together, probably actually spreading the virus uh, while they were there. Donald Trump tweeted on March 15th that we're doing very precise medical screening at our airports. Pardon the interruptions and delays. We're moving as quickly as possible. We must get it right. Safety first. Uh, but it's clear that there were not um, careful screenings going on. Again, very cursory questions about symptoms. Then people released into the U.S. with no with no follow-ups on this. So the idea that this ban really could work um, or that this has saved thousands of lives, I think, is open to serious question. Now, if the China and the Europe, and I should Iran, add Iran here, it looked like the original Muslim ban, the Canada and the Mexico orders uh, follow a very different model. And let me spend just a few minutes on those. Uh, China and Europe were, were unilateral decisions of the president. He invoked uh, his authority under immigration law to prohibit the entry of classes of persons deemed detrimental to the interests of the United States. With Canada and Mexico, the White House negotiated agreements that both were going to restrict travel from the other country, except for travel deemed to be essential, essential travel. And so that was negotiated, and then DHS issued an order, uh, this is on March 18th, and it defined essential travel quite broadly. So again, it's U.S. citizens and LPRs, but it's also people traveling for medical purposes, individuals traveling to attend educational institutions, individuals traveling to work in the United States, which include in the farming or agriculture uh, industry, you have to travel between the U.S. and Mexico, individuals engaged in lawful cross-border trade and the like. So there were quite broad exceptions for their essential. Uh, and what was clear, what was not essential, and this is laid out in the order, are individuals traveling for tourism purposes, sightseeing, recreation, gambling is listed, uh, or attending cultural uh, events. So there was a balance here that was drawn, not a total ban, but rather one that let some people in for strong reasons and tried to keep others out. And I must say, this is a little peculiar to apply against Mexico, where there are really very few uh, reported cases. So this uh, negotiated agreement with Mexico and with Canada was supposed to limit the uh, entry of legal immigrants, but it still left open the question about what about people arriving at ports of entry with no papers? with bad papers, not within one of these authorized categories, or people trying to enter without authorization between ports of entries, undocumented migrants. And for there, there was a very different strategy and justification, and I must say quite a clever one. It was de um, the, the, the entry of these folks was deemed uh, as a health regulation. Uh, let me say a word about that. So on March 20th, um, the head of the CDC, Dr. Redfield, issued a regulation that implemented a section of the Public Health Service Act, 
which permits CDC to suspend the entry, and here I'm quoting, if by reasons of the existence of any communicable disease in a foreign country, there is a serious danger to the introduction of such disease into the United States. That is, CDC can permit the entry of people if it would be bringing a foreign disease into the U.S. I must say, for all my years working in immigration, I was unaware of this provision of the Public Health Service Act that gave the CDC this power. The same day they issued a general regulation and then issued an order, and Redfield said, based on concerns that holding people at ports of entry and border patrol stations would spread the risk because they'd be hanging out in these stations, they'd be mixing with officers, it would take time to process them, what if they applied for asylum, where would we put them? The CDC decided that it was necessary, and here's a quote, to immediately suspend introduction of all covered persons, meaning people without documents not authorized to enter the United States. And then the CDC, the CDC delegated power to DHS and the Border Patrol to implement this regulation by calling for the people's immediate return to the countries of origin, either through a pushback to Mexico or through repatriation flights. So what does that mean exactly? We step back. It means that the CDC, as a health regulation, has basically imposed expedited removal at the border across the United States uh, for people with with no obvious um, ability to ask for asylum. Well, there's some statement in the regulation saying that if officials think it's necessary for humanitarian reasons to let people to stay, they can. But it, it's a serious question about whether this gets rid of uh, credible fear determinations. It clearly gets rid of any kind of process at the border for people and simply pushes them uh, them back. The, the rule took effect on uh, – DHS then issued a new rule on Saturday instructing Border Patrol agents uh, about how to implement this, and uh, if they find people uh, – they want um, who are not authorized to be in the country. They should immediately take them to the nearest port of entry or airfield. But we don't have data yet about exactly how this is working on the southwest border. So look who we have here. Um, it, it's it's a most peculiar situation that Stephen Miller has finally gotten what he has wanted from the beginning uh, of having no more asylum seekers over the southwest border. The uh, the administration had tried dozens of different rules: the transit rule, the wait, may, stay in Mexico. Mexico rule, the implementation of uh, Mexican enforcement of its southern border, et cetera. Uh, but now, uh, based on a health regulation and an order from the CDC, there is no process at the southwest border anymore except for people who come within that definition uh, of necessary traveler uh, under the uh, the earlier order. It reminds me of Rahm Emanuel's famous statement that you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. He said what he meant by that is that an opportunity to do things uh, that you thought you could not do before, and uh, it seems clearly that the administration has, has gotten what it's wanted at the southwest border. My guess is no matter what the situation of the virus over the next few months, that this order uh, will be kept in place for a long uh, time um, to come. Um, I should say also uh, end here by saying that um, uh, it was announced yesterday uh, by DHS that for people already in the migration uh, protection, subject to migration protection protocols, the, the remain in Mexico policy, um, that all cases that were scheduled to be heard in the U.S. before April 28th, but I'm sorry, April 22nd, will now be rescheduled. People will have to show up at the border and get a new date um, from the Border Patrol. Doris, I can later say more about detention and the like, but I think I'm, I'm beyond my time. Okay, thank you very much, Alex, and I'm really glad that you uh, brought out that health directive. I think it is one of the most unexpected things that, that we've seen. It's an extremely uh, unusual authority, which I think many of us in this field have only learned about in the last 48 hours or so. Um, but the third person that we have with us does know about all these things. And so it's a great segue to uh, Alan Kraut, who um, uh, can tell us about the connection between disease and public health uh, with immigration. It's something that reaches far back into our history. And so, Alan, give us a synopsis of that story and um, the lessons that it suggests to us for today. Thank you, Doris. Um, this morning's New York Times ran the following headline, Spit on, Yelled at, Attacked, Chinese Americans Fear for Safety. Uh, many of us have also seen on uh, YouTube uh, an Asian woman wearing a surgical mask being brutally beaten in the New York City subway. 
uh, by someone who clearly seems to be punishing her personally for the coronavirus. On the Los Angeles subway, a man proclaims Chinese people are filthy and says, quote, every disease ever has come from China, end quote. Uh, and, of course, all of this is being stirred and, and uh, added to by the social media. Throughout American history, there has been a kind of double helix, or what I call a double helix of health and fear, uh, basically the stigmatizing of the foreign-born as bringers of disease to America's shores and justification for their persecution. Disease is often deployed to attack the vulnerable, and a lot of us can recall that in the early days of the HIV-AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, the disease was known as the disease of the four H's, Haitians, homosexuals, hemophiliacs, and heroin users. Why Haitians? Because in 1983, an era at the CDC caused Haitians to be classified as a high-risk group for AIDS a designation that was withdrawn in 1985, but not before Haitian families were prevented from renting apartments, children were shunned on school playgrounds uh, in places of high Haitian concentration, Miami, Brooklyn, New York, and so on. Uh, and so we've seen uh, this pattern in our own lifetimes of stigmatizing the foreign-born for diseases when the, when the evidence is, of course, thin to non-existent. The menace of disease from afar is certainly real, and um, hundreds of thousands of Native Americans died after contact with European settlers. They died of smallpox, measles, a variety of other diseases to which their bodies simply lacked immunity. And these we sometimes refer to as virgin soil epidemics. Um, there was no immunity to these diseases that were coming from abroad. Uh, the Europeans interpreted the decimation as an act of God, destroying heathens to the advantage of Christians. The Europeans themselves uh, used quarantine regulations established to separate the sick from the well, and after the American Revolution, those regulations were passed, sometimes just substituting the word state for colony, as a way of preventing disease from abroad. Uh, what continued, however, was the stigmatization of particular groups for disease. And uh, just a few examples of this, in 1793, the yellow fever epidemic ravaged uh, the East Coast, especially cities like Philadelphia. And those who hated the German immigrants called it German fever. Uh, it also became a political issue. Federalists who were pro-British and anti-French uh, blamed the French departing Haiti, white and black, uh, who were fleeing a slave revolt. And so it depends on who you were as to who you blamed this epidemic on. In 1832, the cholera epidemic that swept East Coast cities was blamed on Irish Catholic immigrants who were then coming by the tens of thousands. And it kind of reinforced anti-Catholic sentiments of the era fueled by Protestant evangelists who were preaching during the Second Great Awakening. It happened again during a second cholera epidemic in 1849, but interestingly less so in 1866, when the society that had been modernized by the Civil War experience turned from blame to a more constructive approach, particularly the formation of new governmental bodies to handle the public health threat. It was then that New York City formed the first Metropolitan Board of Health, which became a permanent fixture of urban government and was given increasingly large powers uh, over public behavior during epidemics. The government response to illness from abroad during the 19th century was largely a state and not a federal response. All of the coastal states had immigration bureaus. In New York, a call went out to physicians in the New York City area to volunteer their time to inspect newcomers at Castle Garden, which was the New York State Emigration Depot, um, which opened in 1855. And those of you 
who have uh, taken the ferry to the Statue of Liberty know that you bought your ticket in a big, round, stone structure, which is all that's left of the, the Castle Garden Immigration Depot. Of course, the United States got a huge wave of immigrants between the 1880s and the 1920s. In all, there were about 23.5 million newcomers during that period, mostly from Southern and Eastern Europe, from China and Japan, from parts of uh, Latin America. And fearing that the states weren't up to either the quarantine or the inspection and interrogation responsibilities, the federal government gradually removed the quarantine um, prerogative from the states after 1878, and then in 1890 assumed health inspection responsibilities altogether. And it was the flagship immigration depot on Ellis Island that opened in 1892, where the physicians of the U.S. Marine Hospital Service, which we know today is the Public Health Service, began to conduct individual inspections. The pattern of stigmatization of the foreign-born for particular diseases certainly persisted. And in 1882, uh, as we all know, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which very dramatically curbed Chinese migration to the United States. When cases of bubonic plague surfaced in San Francisco in 1900, they were blamed on the Chinese, even though the main uh, flow of Chinese immigrants had already stopped. But there were Chinese li living all around the West Coast, and certainly many in San Francisco. All of Chinatown was quarantined by health authorities, and there were many citizens who protested and wanted to simply burn it down. Um, other epidemics drew similar kinds of stigmatization response. The polio epidemic, for example, of 1916 was blamed on Southern Italians and the prevalence of TB, while not uh, technically an epidemic, was certainly blamed on Eastern European Jews. TB was often called the Taylor's disease or the Jewish disease, and anti-Semitic nativists pointed to the inferiority of the Jewish body, as they called it, as an argument against assimilation. One of these nativists was a guy named E.A. Ross, who was a professor of sociology at the University of Wisconsin, and he wrote, on the physical side, the Hebrews are the polar opposite of our pioneer breed. Not only are they undersized and weak-muscled, but they shun bodily activity and are exceedingly sensitive to pain. Others commented that Jews were inherently tubercular. Of course, the most memorable epidemic of the early 20th century, and the one that is being cited most frequently in the current discussions, was the 1918 influenza pandemic. And because the influenza pandemic affected so many countries and affected our young men fighting in World War I of so many backgrounds, Interestingly, no one group was stigmatized with responsibility for bringing the scourge to the U.S. In fact, there were 500,000 foreign-born soldiers of 46 different nationalities who were serving in the U.S. military. So who do you blame? Um, also, immigration during that pandemic had already been slowed because of the war. The number of newcomers had dropped to 110,618 in 1918 from 1,218,000 in 1914. Uh, even Ellis Island was not processing immigrants. It was now being used for prisoners of war and enemy aliens, and the two hospitals on Ellis were caring for military personnel. But with so many immigrants having arrived in the U.S. in the previous decades, Public health, especially urban public health, was a major challenge during the pandemic. Uh, Foreign-born physicians, ethnic community leaders, but especially the foreign language press played a big role in encouraging best health practices during the pandemic. And as I've looked into this and looked back at um, the, the newspapers that were being published of the, of the era, you could certainly see how they were participating. For example, 
The editors of the Italian newspaper Il Progresso Italo Americano urged its readers to obey public authorities, practice good sanitary habits, uh, avoid drinking from communal drinking cups, which were also at public fountains in those days, and not spitting on the sidewalks and always sneezing uh, or coughing into handkerchiefs. Um, what was true of the Italian community was also true of the Jewish community, especially uh, the Yiddish language newspapers. The largest selling newspaper was the Forward, or in Yiddish, the Favorts, uh, which encouraged cooperation, respect for the New York Health Commissioner, Royal Copeland, uh, and other authorities. Their words must be taken seriously. Their directions must be followed. Interestingly, even in the midst of the pandemic, the editors of this socialist newspaper couldn't resist the temptation for politics as usual, as we're seeing all too frequently today. Who is responsible for the disease and its deadly outcomes, according to the forward uh, editorialists? Easy. Capitalists. Greedy landlords who gave too little heat in the winter and charged exorbitant rents. And factory owners who exploited their workers. This pattern of blaming the other for the illness in our midst and even politicizing the epidemic echoes throughout history and certainly the history of this country. As frightening as the effects of the coronavirus are for our bodies, there is an additional reason for fright, I would suggest, and that is the effects of the pandemic on our respect and our treatment of those who are not like us. And this increasing frequency of prejudice fueled by fear, uh, I have been calling the other pandemic. And this other pandemic is not likely to recede anytime soon. Thanks very much. Thank you, Alan. Thank you very much. Uh, it is a many, many, uh, a, lot, a storied history and themes that recur and recur. So I, um, we're, now, we're now at the, at the Q&A point, and um, uh, we, are, we have questions that have come in from various of you and so various people in the audience. So uh, let me go ahead and raise a, a couple of them. Uh, let me start with this question that uh, I think you can answer, Alex, because you had alluded to it as you closed your own remarks. And that is the issue of the potential here and the effects and what is taking place with regard to detention centers and unaccompanied minors, CDC regulations, and any uh, uh, information that we have on what might be happening with those categories of people. Yeah. So first, on the, I believe that the CDC order at the border does not apply to unaccompanied minors. But, but as to detention, you know, we've got almost 40,000 folks in detention now, and there was a letter that was signed uh, by about 3,000 uh, doctors and health professionals, nurses, and others, and it, we went to the acting director of ICE, and it, it called for the immediate release of migrant, uh, all detainees, uh, and then identification of community-based alternatives, particularly for the for the most vulnerable, just a sentence from this letter that I thought was interesting. It says, uh, detention, these are the, the health professionals writing, detention facilities like the jails and prisons in which they are housed are designed to maximize control of the incarcerated population, not to minimize disease transmission or to efficiently deliver health care. And then it goes on to point out about crowded and unsanitary conditions and poor ventilation and access to hygienic materials, et cetera, that make detention facilities just uh, uh, places where if the disease is, is introduced, it's likely to, to spread quite widely. Um, also, two other things. A, a former ICE acting director, John Sandweg, he was um, uh, acting director in the Obama administration, wrote an article in The Atlantic uh, over the weekend that called for the release of all nonviolent uh, detainees. And he pointed out this is not just about the safety for the migrants, but also for the ICE officers and others uh, at the detention facilities and their, their families as well. So it has a, there, there's a, a ripple on effect here 
uh, of keeping people in situations where they're likely to get um, sick and it's likely to spread widely. And then thirdly, a lawsuit has been filed. The, 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 it was filed on behalf of detainees at Berks County, Dillian Carnes, the family residential um, centers. It's titled OMG versus Wolf, and people have pointed out the irony of the lead plaintiff here, uh, OMG, um, for some of you may pick that up. Uh, it, um, it challenges continued detention in these centers on Fifth Amendment grounds under federal administrative law and also under the Flores settlement and seeks parole for uh, for people. How far that will go, uh, we'll have to see. So there's been a lot of agitation and comment from the outside, um, but nothing uh, so far specifically from the administration uh, on releasing people. Uh, the one other thing to report here is that ICE has changed its enforcement priorities. Um, it says it is temporarily adjusting uh, its enforcement posture starting March 18th, a few days ago, and that they would only be uh, undertaking enforcement against public safety risks and individuals subject to mandatory detention based on criminal grounds. Whether this will mean a decrease in overall detention, I don't know, but it's interesting that this new policy uh, essentially cuts ICE back to uh, the Obama administration discretion rules on, on how ICE was going to behave. So that's one interesting implication of uh, of this situation. Uh, okay, thank you, Alex. Uh, uh, Natalia, there's a question here that I think uh, we should direct to you, and that is uh, any comments or, or thoughts that you would have about the potential impact of the virus on developing countries and how this might shape how we think about migration and development? Sure, thanks, Doris. Um, I think it's clear that while every person in the world right now is feeling some of the repercussions of this pandemic, the, the negative effects will really be concentrated on the most vulnerable, and this is going to highlight existing vulnerabilities in our society like nothing else perhaps has. Um, and so, you know, the developing world is um, also where over 85% of displaced people um, are, um, are living at the moment. And I think people in situations of displacement in camps and urban settings, um, but particularly in closed settings, are going to be at extremely high risk. I mean, we've seen really devastating reports from the front lines of people who do not have access to basic hygiene whose movements are restricted in ways that serve um, enforcement and public order goals, but not necessarily public health goals. Um, and so I think for the most vulnerable um, and for those whose options are, and mobility is most constrained, we're gonna see some really dire tensions between public health imperatives and, you know, the, the reality in which they find themselves. Okay, uh, and Alex, I'm gonna direct the next question to you, but if, since the migration and development brief is one that you've also spent a lot of time on, feel free to comment on that as well if you'd like. Uh, but back to the uh, questions from, from uh, the audience that are on other topics. Uh, on asylum again, and asylum at the border. Is asylum at the border basically, uh, and, and the directives applying to between ports of entry, or does the asylum process change if people are coming to and through ports of entry? Uh, it's unclear exactly what the impact on the asylum process is. What the order seems to do is allow people appearing at ports of entry or between ports of entry uh, to be returned um, uh, directly to their country of origin uh, or to Mexico, um, depending on the Mexican agreement on that. Um, so it seems to say there's not going to be any credible fear or any kind of way to file an application. Now, so and maybe if people are returned to Mexico, they'll be able to come back in, under the migration protection protocols and, and file a claim, but it doesn't look like anyone at the border will be taking uh, asylum claims either at the ports of entry or between ports of entry. Now, 
the, it, as I said, the order does include this fuzzy language that uh, for humanitarian reasons, people can, you know, the order need not apply. And so maybe on a case-by-case -case basis, there'll be some determination by some officers to permit people to do it. But uh, I think there's a serious question whether asylum exists now at the southwest border. We'll have to have to wait. The order just went into effect, but it seems to be gone. And so on that topic, uh, in terms of broad principles here and the broad responsibilities of countries, would a health emergency such as the one that we're now experiencing, which, where's the hierarchy of responsibilities here for that vis-a-vis -vis the responsibility of non-refoulement? Well, first of all, if, if if you're returning people to Mexico, it, it's not obviously refoulement because you're not returning to their countries. If you're putting people on planes and taking them back to their to their home countries, if that's happening, then that could be a, a, a clear example of, of refoulement and violate the convention. There, it's it's unclear as to whether emergency situations uh, permit. Uh, the closing of a border to asylum seekers. I, I don't know how a court uh, well, I would rule uh, on that or, or even what UNHCR's position would be. I assume it would be something like, you know, every measure, every chance should be taken not to return people where they might be uh, at risk of uh, serious harm. But even the, you know, Article 33, the non provision, uh, does permit the return of people who are deemed dangerous to the security of the of the country, and I, I, my guess is the, the administration would make some kind of argument under that. But, but we're in an area that I, that I don't know has been adjudicated, and I, I think it's, um, it, it's it, the claims can certainly be made that direct return to a country where you fear persecution is refoulement. Whether or not there is an exception for this kind of emergency would have to be worked out. Okay, so uh, Alan, here's a question that has to do with globalization mm -hmm. in light of the <clears throat> history that you've been talking about. So with the ease and the speed of travel and information uh, that we see today, uh, how, how, how does that impact this situation vis-a-vis -vis the historical examples that you've uh, uh, given us? I think there's no question about the fact that the speed of current uh, transportation and the speed of uh, communication and information has really transformed the situation. I mean, uh, this, uh, this uh, virus, the coronavirus spread so rapidly uh, because of patterns of transportation which people were able to go from one part of the world to the other uh, so quickly, and how quickly we knew about it. Uh, this is very different from the 1918 pandemic when the news was traveling uh, a bit more slowly and uh, at first it was believed that uh, uh, the virus was confined to the troops and then it was clear that it was much broader than that. But all the information that the government had uh, was much, much uh, delayed by the slowness of the communication. One other point, too, and that is that the, the federal government in Washington uh, participated much less in uh, activity concerning the outbreak than we see now. Woodrow Wilson, for a long time, denied that there was much of a problem uh, and wasn't actively involved in speaking about uh, the, the, the pandemic in the way that we see the federal government, including the president and the vice president, engaged today. It's a very different pattern. Most of what happened in 1918, most of the authority for coping with what was going on was left to uh, state and local officials, uh, and often the emphasis on local, uh, local commissioners of health, mayors, and so on. Okay, uh, let's, um, let's, this point that you made, Alex, that's so interesting about negotiate, about the U.S. having negotiated with Canada and Mexico as compared with the unilateral actions of just establishing travel bans. Are there other examples of that that you know or Natalia that you're aware of in the, in the, in the current picture? 
I'm not aware of them. It doesn't mean they don't exist. I just don't know about them. Natalia, in the in the case of what's happened with uh, what's going on now with the Schengen countries and their own changes in border policies, et cetera, is there anything uh, analogous? Sure. Well, um, you did have an agreement, um, you know, among um, national, among the member states of the European Union to restrict travel. Um, so, you know, I guess that's, that's another example of um, uh, reaching a cooperative arrangement rather than kind of blindsiding each other. Well, yes, and I guess it has, it, we should add that, that European countries were deeply offended, uh, according to the reporting, by the way in which the United States established, without consultation, the order that uh, banned Europeans from traveling to the United States. Um, uh, exactly, and it's quite worrisome in this context where, you know, on one hand we're saying we have to all be in this together, and on the other hand you have this, as Alex um, mentioned, the nation first responses. And I think as we get further into this crisis, um, you know, we may discover we need shipments of medical supplies and um, circulation of health workers from other countries um, that uh, we we may have offended um, in earlier responses. There's a question here about how people and organizations, think tanks, other sectors of society that are concerned about immigrants and the, in some ways, disproportionate effects of of, uh, of this kind of crisis on those who are the most vulnerable. What, what, are, what are ways that, <clears throat> that uh, different sectors can help influence health policy? I mean, there are policy making is taking place day by day. Uh, do you know of examples in which the health policy is actually being influenced or should be being influenced? by those who are really aware of what the effects are on immigrants in the country? Who did that question go to? Well, I'm just trying to think. I mean, I think it's a question <laughs> that you could answer, but I'm also thinking that Alan might have, uh, you know, might know of some of the examples in the past where this kind of uh, influence went on. I mean, he was very interesting in his rundown about how so much of the way in which public health actually has evolved in this country has been a function of issues regarding immigration. I don't think there's any doubt that in earlier um, epidemics and pandemics that um, ethnic organizations have played major roles. Um, they weren't think tanks. They were uh, often organizations that were based on uh, ethnic heritage, but they spoke to their populations and insofar as they were able, extended assistance to members of their own groups uh, during the course of the pandemic. And so I think in the past, we've seen uh, in the private sector a great deal of activity and a lot of it in the case of immigrant communities aimed at their own populations. So. On this public health directive, again, Alex, that you talked about and about the authority that exists for the CDC to have issued such a sweeping uh, uh, order and change, have, uh, uh, perhaps you would know this, Natalia, have countries in Europe, Asia, and Latin America, possibly even Canada, used this public health emergency issue as a tool for shutting down asylum along the lines of what it is that we're now seeing in the United States? Over to you, Natalia. Well, I can't think of any specific examples off the top of my head, but certainly there are public health provisions baked into, you know, almost every um, immigration provision. Um, and, you know, as we're discovering, these often don't see the light of day um, until there is 
this type of crisis. Um, and I think we're, you know, based on um, the uh, heroic efforts of IOM to, to catalog all of the different restrictions that have been put in place all around the world, um, you know, we, we, we do see, um, um, a, you know, heightened um, medical monitoring requiring different kinds of certificates for different categories of entry, different places that have required, um, you know, quarantines, different types of screening. Um, so, you know, I think that um, almost every country in the world at this point is playing with every tool it has available um, for almost every category of entry. Okay, I'm going to ask a question to both Alex and Natalia. Um, how could the travel restrictions have been better designed and implemented? Would it have been possible to tell U.S. citizens and LPRs that they couldn't return to the United States? Alex, why don't you try that? Yeah, no, I don't think so. Um, I, first of all, there could have been better coordination with airlines, more warning and the like, so we didn't have these massive scenes at, at the airport. As I was saying, it so, looks so similar to the Muslim ban where just an order is issued and without the, the careful work that's normally done through the federal the bureaucracy and coordination with countries abroad. So, so the reentry of people could have been much smoother. I, I think it would have required, I mean, this goes to the failure of testing. I mean, I think it, we, we should let people back in, but it should have been followed with, with significant testing and monitoring whether people kept to the quarantine. I think, there, you know, when we brought people in from the cruise ship, and I think the U.S. brought back about 800 people directly from the Wuhan area, they were placed in quarantine at, um, at military bases in the U.S. Now, you, you can't detain, you know, 40,000, 80,000 people. We don't have the resources to do that, but there could have been a more um, strict uh, requirement of uh, to ensure that people really are self-quarantining and 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 monitoring. Uh, it just uh, otherwise there's really no basis for claiming that these these bans have had any impact at all on on stopping the spread. Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, and just to add on to that a little bit, um, I think that we. Ha, you know, so no, you can't you can't prevent um, returning citizens and legal residents from returning. Um, but what you can do is assume that the smaller pool of people that you're still allowing to come through includes some proportion of people who are infected with this disease and act accordingly. So I think that a lot of these restrictions assumed that we already had the tools in place to screen for the highest risk when it came to public health, but we were using tools that were developed for very different kinds of risk, um, where, you know, things like nationality or, you know, pinging um, law enforcement databases um, or things like that were are useful and effective. And I think in this case, the screening that we had um, for the disease missed a lot of people who were either not symptomatic or who were deliberately masking their symptoms. And so I think one, one thing that should have been done much better was just assuming that some risk was still making it through the system and following people, putting in place contact tracing, um, you know, we have short, you know, just sort of um, uh, Kafkaesque stories of people filling out these elaborate, you know, questionnaires um, in planes before their landing, um, and uh, you know, and then there's no um, border authority who is collecting this information, and so once people are out of the airport, you know, they've they're sort of lost in the system. Okay, uh, thanks so much. I, um, I have to say that we are at the end of our time now, and so I want to thank the audience very much for being with us and apologize for those questions that we were not able to, uh, to take and answer. Um, but um, uh, I, I want to thank our guests very much, particularly the Zolberg Institute for partnering with us in this event. 
and our three very knowledgeable speakers and for sharing your thinking and your observations with us. Let me also remind you of resources that are available on MBI, MPI's website, uh, which is the new commentary on the coronavirus, which is spreading across borders, but is not a migration problem. And also to tell you that slides and the audio from today's webinar will be available at www.migrationpolicy.org slash events later today. We will also, as I said earlier, be hosting a webinar on COVID-19 and migration in the Americas. So please stay tuned for that, as well as other materials that we will be posting all along on our website. Um, for any reporters who are on the call who have further questions, please be in touch with, with Michelle Middlestock at 202-266-1910. And with that, thank you all. Stay well. All the best to all of us. See you next time. Thank you very much, Doris. Thank you all.